Hey, my name's Nathan, and uh, we've got about 25 minutes to uh, make, make it through a lot of stuff. I serve on the equipping team here, so uh, let's just get right to it. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. So if you've ever heard me teach, especially if you've taken the Keys to Effective Bible Study class, uh, one of our core classes, which if you haven't, obviously I would encourage you to take that class, then uh, you, you've, you've heard the importance of context. So you, you, never, you never open the scriptures and just immediately start reading. You always have to ask questions. Kind of the five W's, who, what, when, why, um, and then there's another one. <clears throat> um, and, and so there's, when, when we come to the text, we never just want to open up and just uh, s- start. So especially if, you're, if you didn't join us in the spring and you missed Mark chapters 1 through 8, one, I want to encourage you to go back and read that. Um, it it, it t- doesn't take a whole lot of time. But then secondly, uh, where, where we're going to jump in and dive in this morning fits into a broader story. So it's kind of that, hey, we're going to read a section, but that section fits within a larger section of the book of Mark, and that fits within kind of the themes of Mark. And so this is coming off of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 29 and 30, where, P- where Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what about you? Um, who do you say that I am? Which is the question, right, um, uh, that Jesus asks all of us, that everybody must respond to. But, but Peter turns to him and says, you're the Christ, um, and Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. And then what's interesting, and this will be kind of a theme about this morning, is, is that Jesus, uh, Peter makes this confession about G- that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus immediately uh, predicts not that he's going to go and take over the throne in Rome, right? He immediately predicts that he's going to die, right? And that's like, there'll be a couple of mind-blown things, you know, this morning, but that's one of them. And then he calls, he, 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 say, he basically says, I'm going to die, and if you want to have a part in me, then you also must die, which is like, man, I'm excited about that. What in the world, you know? <clears throat> but let's pick, let's pick it up from there. So uh, chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, which are kind of his inner disciples, with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then this awesome parenthetical statement, right? He didn't know what to say (laughs) because he was freaked out. (laughs) Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, which is also amazing, right? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So we'll stop right there. Because I was talking to my wife about this and and a couple other people. This is one of those sections of scripture where, let's be honest, sometimes you read something like that and you're like, what? Like literally when I was talking to my wife about this, I was like, yeah, this transfiguration and all this stuff. And she was like, were there drugs involved in that, you know? And I was like, I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I think like historically this like actually happened. But I mean, sometimes our, our perception of things is such that like if somebody, I mean, that, that's probably a fairly natural question that probably a lot of us are asking. Like what in the world is going on? Like Jesus is standing here with three of his disciples up on a mountain. Things are fairly normal, right? And then all of a sudden things are not normal. Um, there's bright lights. Other people show up out of nowhere, Jesus turns into something else that's like bleach white, kind of this radiance that's coming out of his face. Peter doesn't know what to say. 
um, which even though he doesn't know what to say, that never stops him anyway. He just says stuff, you know, anyway, which is awesome. But, but it's, and, and it can be hard to believe. Let's just be honest. Um, and so as I thought about this, I thought maybe that we would start this morning with a little mental exercise. So probably half of you are asleep still, and the other half, you know, hopefully this will wake us up, get our minds going, right? But <clears throat> as difficult as that is to embrace the, this, this, that happening, I think one of the things that I have a lot of difficulty embracing is that um, I actually exist. Have you ever thought about that before? We actually exist. Like, why existence rather than non-existence, right? Uh, why, why something rather than nothing? That, that's, that can also sometimes be hard to believe. Um, and then even beyond that, what's even more crazy is that, is that not just that, that we exist, but we know that we exist. What? Like, mind blown. Um, it's, it's, it's not just that we exist, we know that we exist. And we have the capacity to reason, to put A and B and C together in such a way that it actually makes sense. That, fellas, I'm telling you, like, as we're driving around today, like, that ought to blow your mind, okay? Uh, we, we take it for granted so often, but that's just the reality of it. We exist, we know that we exist, and we're able to rationalize our world in such a way that A, if A, then B, if B, then C, which, which frankly, guys, I think if we deny the existence of God or if we deny the reality of something beyond us, then that faces us with this problem that's called infinite regress, okay? Some of y'all are like, what in the world, man? <laughs> right? Here's the problem of infinite regress. Um, all of our ability to explain everything is, is dependent on presuppositions. So if we say, hey, there is, uh, there is A. Well, if A, if A is true, right, then it is, uh, if A is true, then B is true. And if B is true, then C is true. And if C is true, then D is true. Do you see what I'm saying? They're, they're all, um, it's, not like, it's not like we have an ex explanatory value that just everything just is. And, and so what infinite regress is, is if, there's, if, if that it does not have explanatory stopping power, if it doesn't stop at something that is the source from which all explanations are derived, then it's called an infinite regress, it, and you, you lose your ability to explain anything because it's not, your ability to explain anything is not grounded in something objective. Do you see what I'm saying? So, in, in other words, we see the world as true, small t, but in order for us to call it true, there must be the existence of that from which the small, tree is, small, small t is derived that is a big T true. Right? So that's the problem of infinite regress. And, and I think that, that um, if, if you take the atheistic view and say, well, we just don't know, then ultimately what you're saying is, I don't know what I'm saying. That's, what you're, that's ultimately what you're saying. Um, so the easiest way to explain this is like the chicken and the egg, right? So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken did. Well, where did the chicken come from? It came from that egg. Well, where'd that egg come from? It came from that chicken. Well, where'd that chicken come from? It came from that egg. Do you see the loop there? And so if it's not grounded in something where we can say, actually, no, the chicken came from here, and then that process began, then, then we're stuck, all right, in our just ability to believe anything at all. And, and, and here's the fascinating thing and the point of this is that in the Christian view, and I think in the right view, because I'm a Christian, right, but in the Christian view, the explanatory ultimate, the thing that all 
little t truth is derived from is God. God is that truth. He's the big T truth that everything else is derived from. He is the source of everything that's real. So we, we look at reality, small r. God is the big R reality from which all of, of our other realities are sourced from and also sustained by, right? And so um, what we see in the transfiguration is that Jesus is, is, is living his life. He's making claims about himself. He's doing things about these claims that are extraordinary. And then he comes to this point in Mark 8 where he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, which there's a lot of things from a Jewish messianic standpoint that come a lot. That's a loaded statement, right? But what Peter is thinking is, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah that's going to liberate us from Rome. And then Jesus um, tells him, you know, you're right, but you're, you're, you're right. Um, but you're uh, more right than you think you are, right? There's mystery here. Mystery is not the absence of meaning. Mystery is a pre the presence of more meaning that we can understand, right? And so what, Peter, what Jesus does is he takes his, his three closest disciples up onto a mountain, and what he shows them is that the mask is off, right? The transfiguration doesn't take us away from reality, it recalls us to it. It recalls us from our dream worlds of ifs and ands, small r reality, little t truth of, of presupposition based on other presuppositions, right? This whole infinite um, that, if, that if not grounded in God leaves us with nothing. And Jesus shows up and says, I am going to recall you from your dream world of ifs and ands to the stunning actuality of everything that is real. The transfiguration is a focal point at which more reality becomes visible than we ordinarily see at once, right? This is, look guys, we lived in a veiled world. There is a lot more going on in the world than you and I can see, right? And this is an, an astonishing moment where Jesus shows up and says, I'm gonna lift the veil off of your eyes for just a moment so that you can see what's actually going on around here, Right? That's what freaks me out. Sometimes I'm driving down the freeway like LBJ, and I'm like looking around going, what am I not seeing? You know? <laughs> I see stuff, but what am I not seeing? That's the, uh, the yeah, again, you know, mind blown. Um, and so um, what, what we're seeing here is, is that um, he's, uh, he, he's taking the mask off. He's saying, this is who I actually am. And, and I think that it shouldn't shock us, I think, when we place it together with the rest of the Gospels. Because even in John 14, when, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place from you that, for, for you, that where I am, you will, you, you will be there with me also, and you know the way that I am going. And one of his disciples says, well, how do you, what do you mean we know the way to where you're going? We don't know where you're going. We don't, how can we know the way? And Jesus answers and says to him, what? I am the way. And then, I am the truth. Big T truth. The, the reality of the Christian claim is that, that the very center, not just of a religion, but the very center of all of reality is the man, the one man, Jesus Christ. He's the big R reality. He's the big T truth. He's the truth from which all other truths are sourced from and, and sustained. He's the big R reality that is the reality behind our small R reality that pushes reality to us and sustains reality for us. 
he is, he is all of those things. He is the truth. He is the life. And what's crazy is, um, as soon as he comes down from this transfiguration moment, we would expect for, I mean, when, when reality shows up and you're like, whoa, that's crazy and it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it, but what in the world, you know, this is going on. That's, that it's hard for us, it would be easy for us to do exactly what Peter did. Hey, let's, let's erect a temple. Let's erect, you know, shelters for you. Let's, let's, and then I think we see in the passage, let's go to Jerusalem and take over. That's what should happen. And he immediately, as he comes down from the mountain, um, he, he says to them, hey, don't tell anybody until that I have risen from the dead. In verse 9. We, so, so we expect this certain type of kingdom, and yet Jesus, this reality, um, shows up and, and then uh, gives his disciples exactly the opposite of what they're expecting. And not just that, as he comes down, um, he encounters his enemy, right? This passage is really, really close to, to, the beginning of, to the beginning of Mark where Jesus shows up and is, and is baptized and at his baptism, the father also speaks. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then the transfiguration happens. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then uh, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the desert and is tempted by his enemy. And immediately after the transfiguration, he comes down from the mountain, and who does he encounter? He encounters uh, this, this small boy who is possessed by probably multiple demons, right? And, and so it just, it just goes to underscore the reality and the fact that the path to ushering in Jesus' kingdom necessarily includes Jesus meeting his enemy at the cross, the, the kingdom kind of life that Jesus came to live is not the kind of kingdom life that would exalt him to an earthly throne and give him earthly power and give him those kind of things. He, look, if we don't know anything from the transfiguration, he already has that power, right? So um, what he's doing is he's showing us where life is actually found and that, that the way to the kingdom um, necessarily includes a cross to die on. And, and that's the reality of the, the Christian life. So uh, let's, look at, uh, let's look at chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples and, and you got to remember, like, this is a turning point. Like, chapters 9 and 10 are kind of a turning point in the, in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus has his earlier ministry, and then now um, everything that's going to happen really for the entire fall as we walk through the rest of Mark is that this, there's going to be a, a, an intentional movement toward the cross that we see in, in the Gospel of Mark. And so he tells them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Right? When, when they came to Capernaum, he, he was in the house and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Right? That's always a, that's a loaded question. Um, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about what? Who was to be the greatest, right? Um, that's embarrassing. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, hey, listen guys, if anybody wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child 
and, and had him stand among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Right? There is this messianic expectation that I don't have to, a whole lot of time to go into. But basically, the disciples very much expected for the Messiah to be a, an, a, like a king, like King David. I'm the son of David. That means I'm going to go sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule with a sword. I'm going, to, I'm going to expand Israel's borders. I'm going to bring peace and security to the land. I'm going to drive out the foreigners. That was the messianic expectation. And Jesus is talking about suffering and dying and death, right? De- defeat. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. And it just, it doesn't compute. And, and I think the disciples don't get this. I mean, look at Mark 8, 31 to 33. They have no idea what's going on. Um, 9, 9 to 10 that I said, you know, I read a little bit earlier, like, we have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean you have to rise from the dead? They they have no paradigm in which the Messiah was to be someone who suffered and died on a cross. Those those were paradoxical, right? Um, Not, they don't mix. And, And then also in verse 32 that we just read, we have no idea what you're talking about. And frankly, guys, when it comes to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, we don't, I think we struggle, as the disciples did, um, with the very nature of, of his kingdom. And so um, the, the world defines success as, as, as power, um, position, greatness, right? We have no paradigm in which to say, in order to be great, I have to be a slave, in order to be great, I need to serve you. In order to be great, I need to like let everybody else get all the attention and hang back and, and kind of be behind the scenes um, supporting you. I need to be a servant leader. That, I mean, even in the world today, like servant and leader is like, I mean, the world is looking at that going, we don't know what you're talking about. I was, uh, for those of y'all who know me and, and maybe heard a little bit of my story, I served in the military and I uh, was an infantry officer. I, I deployed twice to Afghanistan. And uh, I was, during one of my deployments, I remember, um, and I, I always tell guys this, I'm like, hey, if you want to see where Jesus lived, go to Jerusalem. If you want to see how he lived, go to Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> it's literally like, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. But um, we, we have these, we, we would do a lot of uh, um, engagements with uh, tribal leaders in these villages. And so we would go in and, and, and host these things called shuras. It's like a tribal council where we talk about issues and how we can help and how we can assist and all that stuff. And I remember going into a, like a major shura. Like it wasn't just a village one. It was like a district one. And so all the big shots were there, you know. And my guys are out uh, outside of the compound pulling security and these guys are coming in and, and I'm sitting in there because I'm just paying attention to see what kind of relational dynamics are going on and where I need to engage um, these guys. And uh, it was fascinating to me because um, in that shura, which is like a large square um, where guys just sit, you know, they sit down on the ground. And there are places in that shura of honor where it's like, hey, this guy is in a seat of honor. And they literally were fighting with each other to see who could sit in that seat. Like they, I mean, it was crazy. You had to like, dude, I got to deconflict this situation right now. You know, it's like, I didn't, I mean, I, like if I'm going to get in a fight, I was expecting to get in a fight outside the compound, not in it, you know? And, and yet we're like pulling these guys like, Hey man, you know, just sit down, dude. You know, but there was so much of a, of a grappling and, and, and jockeying for position. And fellas, we do the same thing, man. We do the exact same thing in our lives, whether it's, um, 
whether it's, it's, it's at work or at home or whatever, we, we have such a propensity toward um, how can I be the greatest by exerting my power, my ability, um, my uh, just, just pressing me on everybody. And, and, and yet we, we encounter Jesus and Jesus is like, hey, the requirement for you in my kingdom is for you to selflessly serve. And so when, when coupled with the reality of the transfiguration where Jesus um, shows that he is the big R reality and the big T truth, and, we, and then we look at ourselves in light of that, jockeying for position, and it's kind of like, dude, quit playing the game, man. We look like children, you know? We look like children that, that, that are elbowing each other to try to get to the front of the line. And so my question for you, and as you go to your group this morning, is, hey, what does that look like in your life? What does it look like in your life for you to jockey for position instead of that check in your spirit that would cause you to step back and be like, man, what, is it, what does the way of the cross look like right here? Because here's the reality of it, is that, is that the more we jockey for position, the, the, the more we come as, as prideful, self-willed, um, uh, just selfish people, and less as a child, the more um, you will pay for it in the end. The reality of it is, is the first one who jockeys to sit in that position, then the main elder comes in and is like, hey, get out of my seat, boom, and puts him at the back of the line. And that's what happens um, when, when the height of our pursuit in life is money and power and greatness and fame. And, and it may not be fame on a large scale. It may just be fame among your circle of friends where somebody's celebrating something and there's that, there's that part of your spirit that's like, oh, I want them to talk about me. I, I want that promotion. I want that deal. That guy took that and stabbed me in the back. Like, I want revenge. Like, dude, you fill in the blank. It's your life. There's a guy named Henry Nowen who was an elite world-class scholar and, and uh, he was climbing the ladder of success, published lecturing on a, on a, a worldwide lecture circuit. And, and uh, he, he said, he said, I was climbing the ladder of success, and, and it just hit me that I was, as I was climbing this ladder of success, I, 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 I looked over to the side, and, I, and Jesus passed me. But he passed me on his way down. So Henry Nouwen is climbing the ladder of success, and Jesus is on his way down. And he calls it downward mobility. The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That's what draws attention. Gets us on the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. Woo. Offers us the limelight. Rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It's radically different. It could not be more different. It's the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It's going to the bottom. It's staying behind the sets. It's choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? I mean, that, and that's a good question, guys. When our, when our uh, lens is so focused on, on us and on achieving what, what feels good to us and exalts us and puts us in the limelight and gives us su success and greatness, right? Because I think when you begin to walk with Jesus, um, and, because if you follow Jesus at all, you will follow him to the cross because that's where he's going, right? 
So if we follow Jesus at all, then, then the way of Jesus is downward. We will follow him downward in his way. But I think the thing that you find is that it is the way to the kingdom. Right? It, is the way, um, it, it is the way to eternal life. The reality of what Jesus said um, just in, in Mark 8, where he's like, if you want to if, if gain your life, you have to lose it. That's like not a suggestion. That's just the big R reality telling us the way that things really are. If you really want to find life, if you want to find peace, if you want to find substance, if you want to find meaning, then follow me down. Follow me down to the cross. And that's where you're going to find your life. And so I I think there's these moments in our lives where we look at the upside down nature of the kingdom and then we realize, wait a second, um, the kingdom's not upside down. I am. The kingdom's the only thing that's right side up in this world. And so the way of Jesus is no less shocking today as it was 2,000 years ago when he told his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. So, guys, if we want to be men, we got to follow Jesus because he's the man. He's not the small M man. He's the big M man. He's not the little R reality. He's the big R reality. He's not the little T truth. He's the big T truth. There is no truth or reality or manhood that's found apart from him because he is those things. So as you go to your groups, y'all, y'all talk about this, that this morning. What does that look like in your life? And, uh, and, and I think it's appropriate that we pray for one another because we, are, we encounter the enemy on a consistent basis, one who would steal from us and kill us and destroy us, who would take our manhood from us. Um, and we need to stay centered. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had this morning just digging into your, your written word that testifies about the living word, namely Jesus Christ. Pray that we would see the beauty and the majesty of your son and that we would follow him. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.